Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com slash give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We will get there in just a little while. Uh, So Jeff mentioned that there was a concert here last night. What he did not mention to you is the name of the band that was playing the concert here. The name of the band, I'm not, this is not a joke, was Skank Banger. That's the name of the joke, that's the name of the band. Like, and it was, there was actually a huge banner up behind the stage that says Skank Banger. We went ahead and took that down, because just because we figured, I mean, it's like, what a like maximally offensive name for a band, right? So we took that down just so you guys wouldn't never come back to our church. But that was the concert that was here last night. So we're doing things a little bit differently. Got some levels going on on stage. I'm going to try not to fall off the front or the back of it as I walk around. So if I do, feel free to laugh. That's totally accepted here. But Luke 19 is where we're going to be at today. Um, If you are brand new around here, just for you to know, we are coming up on the end of a series called I Just Can't Believe, where what we're talking about is sort of the obstacles and objections that people tend to have when it comes to faith in Jesus. So far in the series, we have covered a number of different intellectual and sort of philosophical hangups that people have when it comes to Christianity. But this week and next, as we sort of close out the series, we are moving on to a couple of objections that are a little bit less intellectual and are a little bit more relational, if that makes sense. They're, they're less about ideas and concepts, and they're more about people. For a lot of people that you and I know, the issues that they tend to have with Christianity are less about concepts that they have trouble with and are more about experiences they've had with Christians. That, for a lot of people, is what does it in terms of an objection to faith in Jesus. Things that Christians do or don't do or do badly or say or don't say, a lot of times that's the objections that people actually have to Christianity. So for this week and next, we are going to focus on two objections of that sort, sort of relational hang-ups that people have when it comes to faith in Jesus. And today specifically, we're going to cover one objection that most of us have probably heard a good bit when it comes to Christianity, and that's the objection that people have due to the intolerance of Christians. Increasingly, in Western society, Christians are perceived to be intolerant of many other groups of people in our society. If you've tuned into the news or social media ever in your life, you have probably heard some form of this objection to faith in Jesus. People often get the impression that to be a Christian is to be intolerant of all sorts of different groups of people that are different than Christians. So today, we're going to be considering the ideas of tolerance and intolerance. Now, in order to do that, just as a heads up, we're going to have to do a lot of legwork before we get to our passage in Luke 19. And just for you to know, especially if you're new here today, 
That is not normally how we prefer to teach the Bible. Uh, We don't prefer to do like 15 minutes of social commentary before we get to the scriptures. The way we prefer to do it is to just open up a passage and work our way through it little by little and then talk about what it means. But today, and I think a number of times, you actually come across topics that you have to sort of clear some of the weeds out of the way to be able to see how helpful what the scriptures say truly are. And so today it's going to take us a little while because we kind of need to dissect and examine and look at this idea of tolerance and intolerance before we get to what the scriptures might speak to in that regard. And so we will get to Luke 19 eventually, but it's going to take us just a little bit. First off, we need to figure out what people mean when they use the word intolerance. When people say that Christians are intolerant, what exactly are they referring to? Sometimes when people use that word to describe Christians, they are thinking of the really obvious, really extreme examples of it, like you see in the news. Example of people committing violence or inciting violence towards other groups of people in the name of God or Christianity. For instance, Just a few months back, right here in our city, a Knoxville pastor who was also a detective with the city police preached a sermon where he quite literally called for the execution of gay people. That would be an example of intolerance, and not only intolerance, but actually that's one of the least Jesus-like things I've ever heard a pastor say. That's one example. Back in 2015, a man who claimed to be inspired by his religious beliefs walked into a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs and started shooting, killing three people and injuring nine more. That's another example of intolerance, somebody committing violence or inciting violence in the name of their particular faith, and specifically faith in Jesus. So there are plenty of examples out there, if you're looking for them, of Christians using their faith as justification for these types of behavior. For this type of hatred and violence, whether it's towards the LGBTQ community, whether it's towards other religions and faith traditions, whether it's just towards other people's lifestyles, the way they go about practicing their sexuality or whatever the case may be. If you're looking for examples of intolerance in the name of God, and specifically in the name of God of Christianity, there are plenty of examples out there for the taking. And so I think sometimes that's where people are coming from when they talk about Christians being intolerant. They're talking about those sorts of things. But if you're paying attention, you may have also noticed that when some people say that Christians are intolerant, they actually mean something very different than that. Um, Generally speaking, if your non-Christian coworker calls you intolerant for being a Christian, they probably don't mean they think you're about to go shoot up a Planned Parenthood clinic, right? That's generally not what they're referring to. Usually when people call Christians intolerant, they're referring to something a lot more subtle than those examples that we just talked about. So I'll just give you guys a firsthand example from my own life. Um, A while back, I think it was probably four or five years ago, I was working for a church in South Carolina And there was a couple that was interested in becoming a member of our church. They were interested in joining our church family. This couple had been dating for a few months, and pretty quickly after starting to date, they had moved in together. And so they wanted to figure out what our position was on that before they decided to become members of our church. 
And so this couple emailed me and asked the question, just point blank. They said, do you think it's sinful for us to live together while we're dating? Keep in mind, I had never met this couple prior to this point. So it's a rather aggressive question, right? But I was like, okay, we're doing this. I'll just try to answer the question best I know how. And so I tried to respond as compassionately and as in, in an understanding way as I possibly could. But the way I answered it was this. I said, first off, I would love to grab coffee with you guys to hear more about your story, hear more about your relationship with Jesus, hear more about your relationship with each other and how you guys landed on this decision. I would love to grab coffee with you and get to know you a little bit better so that I can helpfully speak into this. But I said, if you're just wanting a blunt answer to your question, I would say if you consider yourselves to be followers of Jesus, you are called to flee sexual immorality. That's what scripture teaches. We're called to flee sexual immorality. And I said, it's hard to make the case that living together is fleeing sexual immorality. And so I would say, yes, that is not a good way to pursue God's design for your relationship and your sexuality. And upon hearing that back from me, they responded, and here's what they said. I'm quoting here from the email. They said, see, this is why nobody wants to be a Christian anymore, because Christians are so intolerant of people's lifestyles. So I wrote back, so we're not getting coffee? Or, <laughs> so it's definitely a no on coffee. Okay. So whatever you think about my response to them, whether you think I handled that right or not, whether you think I, I should have been more compassionate or less compassionate or whatever it was, whatever you think about my response to them, just think about what they said to me for a second. Think about their accusation that I was being intolerant because of my answer. Because I didn't put them on blast. I didn't single them out in front of other people. I didn't call for their public shaming or execution. I didn't refuse to be friends with them. In fact, quite the opposite, right? I offered to get coffee with them to get to know them better so that we could develop some sort of friendship. I didn't do any of those things. All that happened was that they asked me a very straightforward Bible question, and I gave them a very straightforward Bible answer. And based on my answer to their question, they accused me of being intolerant. Now, do you see how that definition of intolerance is actually quite different than the ones we talked about a few minutes ago? That's a much more subtle definition of intolerance than the guy in the Planned Parenthood clinic or the pastor here in Knoxville. And I think that really is symbolic of a shift that has taken place in our society over the past few decades when it comes to this idea of tolerance. I think a shift has occurred in our society to where tolerance and intolerance actually mean something very different now than they used to, even just a few generations ago. Such that now we have an, we have an old tolerance and we have a new tolerance. We have an old definition of it and a new definition of it. Old tolerance, and we'll put these up on the screen just so you can kind of compare and contrast them. Old tolerance meant accepting the existence of different perspectives. Old tolerance meant accepting the existence of different perspectives. So being tolerant meant that if I'm a Christian and you are Muslim, that we can fundamentally disagree about some very important things. You can think I'm wrong and I can think you're wrong. We can disagree about very fundamental things when it comes to life and reality and God. 
But we can do that, we can disagree and still agree to love one another and respect one another and live alongside one another in peace and without berating one another with insults, without threatening to harm or kill one another. That's what tolerance used to mean, is that we can do that. We can disagree and still agree to live together with peace and respect between us. But around the 1960s, the cultural definition of tolerance began to shift. It began to change a little bit to where today, new tolerance actually means something completely different than old tolerance. New tolerance means affirming the correctness of different perspectives. New tolerance means affirming the correctness of different perspectives. So today, being tolerant actually means that if I am a Christian and you are Muslim, you're not allowed to think I'm wrong and I'm not, alone, I'm not allowed to think you're wrong because to think that you are wrong would be considered to have a phobia of you. And so that's not allowed. It's no longer that we can agree to disagree. It's now that we have to agree and affirm with everybody else's perspectives, even if it is at very much at odds with our own. Put simply, tolerance is no longer just about accepting people with different beliefs. It now requires that we affirm the beliefs themselves. And that's actually very different. It requires that we say that another person's beliefs are every bit as true as ours. So thinking back to the couple in South Carolina that wanted to become a member of our church, it turns out that what they wanted was not my answer to their question. What they wanted was for me to agree with their answer to their question. That's actually very different. And I would argue that this new tolerance actually kills the ability for meaningful dialogue between different people and different perspectives in our society because we can now no longer agree to disagree. We have to agree with everything. And I would argue that's not a very helpful framework for a functional society. So I think it's worth dissecting this new definition of tolerance just a bit before we move on. Because I think that this new definition of tolerance is actually somewhat problematic as a worldview, not just for Christians, but for anybody who genuinely tries to live it out practically. And I think it's problematic primarily because it operates out of at least two faulty assumptions. There are two faulty assumptions being made behind the new tolerance. And we'll just walk through these, spend a couple minutes on each one. Assumption number one that the new tolerance operates out of is that accepting someone means approving of everything that they do. Assumption number one is accepting someone means approving of everything that they do. So again, with the couple that I emailed with, their understanding of tolerance assumed that if I didn't affirm every aspect of their life together entirely, that I was being intolerant of them. That's what they functionally believed. The assumption made often in our society is that if you tell someone that anything they are doing is morally wrong, if you disapprove of their actions in any way, that you are actually being intolerant and hateful towards them. Here's the problem with that assumption, though. I don't think any of us actually believe that at a functional level. I don't think any of us actually believe that accepting someone necessitates approving of every single thing that they do. 
For example, just at a personal level, my wife Anna disapproves of a lot of things that I do. <laughs> like quite a few. S- some on the surface, some that don't matter so much, and some that actually matter a lot. So for example, Anna disapproves of the fact that I have never once in our entire marriage took it upon myself to clean the bathrooms in our house without being asked. Not once in our entire marriage have I taken it upon myself to do that. She disapproves of that reality about me. Uh, She disapproves of the fact that sometimes I eat Captain D's because for some unexplicable reason I cannot explain to you, I think it is a good restaurant. I know it's wrong. Like, I understand why I shouldn't like it. I just still do. And she disapproves of that reality about me, quite strongly, in fact. She lets me know every time that I eat there that she disapproves of that part about me. Um, On a slightly more serious note, she disapproves of how some nights, after we get the kids to bed, I just go sit in our room and I open up something on Netflix before her and I have even had the chance to talk for the day. She disapproves of that about me. She disapproves of how sometimes I put my job ahead of her and our family. She disagrees of how sometimes I put my own desires and comfort ahead of her practically in our everyday life. She she disapproves of a lot of things about me. (laughs) And like I said, some of them are on the surface, but some of them are actually in some ways, core to who I am. There are things that I struggle with ongoingly. She disapproves of all of those things and more about me. But let me ask you, does that mean that she's rejecting me as a person? Does that mean that she's intolerant of me altogether? No, not not at all. She actually very much tolerates me, right? Much to my surprise and a lot of other people's surprise, she tolerates me, right? And not only does she tolerate me, she loves me. She has affection for me. But she doesn't think that loving me and accepting me means approving every single thing that I do. In fact, sometimes precisely because of her love for me, she will engage me on the things that she doesn't approve of. So you can disagree with things, you can disapprove of things in somebody else without hating them or being intolerant of them. It is entirely possible to disagree with someone and still love them and accept them. In fact, I would argue our society depends on our ability to do that in some ways. So listen, I cannot think of a more relevant and timely thing for us to grasp the way our society is right now. Let me give you a quick piece of advice when it comes to relating to people that you disagree with. If another person disagrees with you about something, they are not your enemy. They do not hate you and you do not hate them. If someone disagrees with you about something, they are another person deserving of dignity and respect whom you just happen to disagree with. We can still care and love for one another without agreeing with every single thing about every single person. That's entirely possible. And I think we know that, just sometimes we choose selectively how to apply it, right? So, Tolerating someone, accepting someone, does not mean approving of and agreeing with every single thing that a person does. You can disagree with someone about something and still love them at the same time. Those are not opposed to one another. That's the first faulty assumption that the new tolerance operates on. Here's the second one. 
Assumption number two that the new tolerance operates out of is that everyone should be tolerant of everyone's perspective. Everyone should be tolerant of everyone's perspective. People in our society tend to assume that we can create a world where everyone is tolerant of everything. Every single person is tolerant of every single other perspective. That all of us should be tolerant of every perspective out there that there is. But truth be told, again, even the most tolerant of people don't functionally believe that. Even the most tolerant of people are not tolerant of every single perspective. For example, even the most tolerant of people out there are not making the case that we should affirm the right of white supremacists to shoot up minorities in our country. Nobody's making that case. Even the most tolerant of people, right? Nobody is making the case that we should affirm the right of the terrorists on September 11th to fly planes into buildings. Nobody's making the case that we should affirm their right to do that. Even the most tolerant of people. So every society that has ever existed has drawn the line somewhere on what they will and won't tolerate. In fact, that's the whole reason for a justice system, right? Is to be able to say there are certain things that will not be tolerated in our society. Without that, a society actually begins to crumble in on itself because you can't have functional relationships, functional society without it. You have to be able to say certain things will not be tolerated. Inversely from that, consider for a second that some of the most incredible, most liberating moments in human history have been prompted by an intolerance of something. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous I Have a Dream speech called for a holy intolerance of racial inequality in our country. The Holocaust was brought to an end in part by people who were intolerant of the actions of the Nazi regime. The movement in our country to allow women to vote for the first time was motivated by an intolerance of the fact that half of the population had no say-so in who would govern them. So virtually every time that a society has moved forward on a humanitarian front, it has been because a group of people refused to tolerate something right? A group of people refused to tolerate some type of injustice that was happening. So if you insist that everyone be tolerant of every single perspective, functionally, you actually bring progress in our society to a screeching halt. Because to be able to fight for justice in our world, you have to say some things we will not tolerate here. And then lastly, maybe most glaringly about this perspective, this assumption behind the new tolerance. This assumption doesn't work because it's actually self-defeating. It's contradictory. For you to say everyone must be tolerant of everything, do you know who you're being intolerant of? Intolerant people. You're actually doing the thing that you're saying nobody else can do, which is to be intolerant. So not only is this perspective ineffective for fighting, just, fighting injustice in our world, it's actually impossible for anybody to live up to. You cannot make the whole world tolerant without being intolerant of certain groups of people and certain perspectives. Now, I want to be very, very clear at this point 
that none of this justifies intolerance in all of its forms. That's not the case I'm making. Not one bit. It's simply to point out that absolute tolerance, where everyone is, pers- everyone is tolerant of everything, is actually impossible. Absolute tolerance is actually a contradiction in terms. It's a myth. It's an unachievable goal by its very nature. The great irony is that by the new definition of intolerance, we're actually all intolerant. If tolerance means having to affirm the validity of all differing perspectives from your own, we are all actually intolerant of somebody. So the whole idea just starts to break down if you press it much at all. So here's where I would land, and this is why I show you all of that, really. In light of all of this, maybe the question that we should be asking as a society, and even as followers of Jesus, is not how do we agree with and affirm every perspective that differs from our own. Maybe that's actually the wrong question to ask. Maybe the question we should be asking is not how do we agree and affirm every perspective that differs from our own. Maybe the question we should be asking is how do we treat those with whom we disagree? Maybe that's the more productive question for us to ask at a functional level. And that is the question that the Bible speaks to loud and clear, in fact. How should we treat people that we disagree with and even disapprove of? Consistently and repeatedly, the scriptures tell us that as followers of Jesus, we are to love, befriend, and extend hospitality to those that we disagree with and even disapprove of. That we are to love, befriend, and extend hospitality to them. And one place in the Bible that we see this laid out very plainly is in Jesus' interactions with a man named Zacchaeus. So now we're finally to our passage. Take a look with me at Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Let's just work through this passage and examine how Jesus interacts with somebody that he disagrees with fundamentally and even disapproves of. Starting in verse 1 of our passage. He that's Jesus, entered a city named Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know all about that. If you didn't, don't worry about it. You didn't miss much. So uh, there was Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, but he also, passage says, was a chief tax collector and was rich. So stop right there for a second. It's easy for us to miss this when we read it today because we don't know the context. But what the author just told us with those few lines was that this guy Zacchaeus was about as sketch as someone comes. He was about as suspect as someone could be. So a tax collector in that day and age wasn't just like the ancient equivalent of somebody who worked for the IRS, even though that would be enough to scare some of us away, right? That that wasn't what was happening here. A tax collector back then was essentially a traitor to their own people. They had sold their soul to the oppressive, occupying Roman government by agreeing to collect taxes from their own people on the Romans' behalf. And the Romans already charged the Jewish people exorbitant amounts of taxes, right? So the Roman Empire was essentially grinding the Jewish people into poverty because they charged them so much tax. 
But basically what a tax collector would do is they would collect that tax on behalf of the Roman government, but they also could dial up the tax rate that they charged in order to cut a profit for themselves. So as Jewish people were walking through, tax collectors, who were most of the time also Jewish, they were collecting taxes from their own people at crazy amounts of rates. So they were charging so much money that essentially these people were being grinded into poverty. And then they could enforce these inflated tax rates at the point of a sword. And because the passage says that Zacchaeus was, quote, rich, we can reasonably infer that he is inflating his tax rates a good bit when he charges them. So I tell you all of that to help you see that it would have been hard to find somebody in this day and age that the Jewish people more strongly disagreed with and disapproved of than a tax collector, than somebody like Zacchaeus. And as a result, Zacchaeus was likely regularly shunned and excluded by his people. People were intolerant, if you want to use that term, of Zacchaeus in this culture, which actually explains the next part of the story. Keep reading with me in verse 3. And he, he being Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Okay, so some of us are probably under the impression that the only reason Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree is because he's short, right? But that, that's not all that's going on. For sure, that's part of it. I mean, it does say he's small in stature, but there's actually more going on in the story. It's, this story is not just a way of saying like, Jesus loves short people too, even though he does. That, that's not the point of the story exactly. The point of the story is not just that he's short. I mean, after all, even shorter people can break into the front of the crowd if they want to, right? I don't know if you've ever been at like a concert where it's standing room only, but even if you're short and you can't see above everybody's heads, it, if you're aggressive enough and you care little enough about what other people think of you, you can break through the crowd, right? You can make your way to the front. Now, people may not like it, but you can do it. So Zacchaeus could have broken through the crowd if he wanted to. But the problem was that Zacchaeus didn't have that ability. Remember, Zacchaeus was hated. He was notorious in that society. He was shunned by the people. So if he tried to make his way through to get to Jesus, he likely would have been beat up and trampled on as a result because people did not like him. People did not approve of Zacchaeus and his role in the society. Nobody liked him. Nobody wanted to be around him. And so nobody was going to make room for him at all. So it wasn't just that he was short. It was also that he was excluded and hated by the people around him. So he has to climb up into a tree, and it works. Take a look at verse 5 with me. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Jesus sees an immoral person who has been shunned and hated and excluded by everyone around him, and what does he do in response? He includes Zacchaeus. He includes him. He shows Zacchaeus a special level of acceptance in front of all of the people that he has been hated and excluded by. Now, we know that Jesus is not doing this because he approves of Zacchaeus' chosen profession and way of life. We know that for a fact. 
Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name, which means he is aware on some level of who Zacchaeus is and what Zacchaeus does. Zacchaeus is a rich man who takes advantage of the poor. Does that sound like somebody Jesus would approve of? Not at all, right? Do you remember how viciously Jesus went after the rich guy in last week's passage? If you were here, Jesus would not have approved of this guy's lifestyle at all. But let me ask you a question. Does Jesus lead with that? Does he lead with Zacchaeus? I just want you to know I disapprove of your lifestyle. Does he picket Zacchaeus's house to make sure that Zacchaeus knows how not okay what he's doing is? Jesus does none of that. Instead, how does Jesus treat this person that he fundamentally disagrees with and disapproves of? He has dinner with him. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Now, that is a somewhat different approach compared to most of our society today, is it not? Like, when's the last time that you heard somebody say, yeah, I've, I've got a neighbor or a coworker who I really fundamentally disagree with about a lot of things like religion and politics and all of that. So obviously what we do is we get together for dinner once a week and we just try to learn from one another. When's the last time you heard somebody say that? We don't really do that in our society, right? It's more like, yeah, there's this person that I disagree with, so I retweeted what they said and sicked all of my Twitter followers on them to make them change their mind, right? That's how we handle disagreement in a lot of ways. That's not how Jesus handles disagreement. Jesus' approach to those that he disagrees with and disapproves of is entirely different from what our approach normally is. His approach to them is radical inclusion, despite his differences with them. But as you might expect, not everybody is a fan of Jesus' method here. Keep reading with me in verse 7 of the passage. And when they saw it, presumably that refers to all the other people who sort of witnessed this exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus. When they saw that, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So they grumble at Jesus for doing this. And let me just go ahead and tell you, if you choose to go Jesus' route of radical inclusion to those that society hates and shuns, people will grumble at you too. People will grumble at you too as a result. If you spend time regularly with people who don't know Jesus and you go and hang out with them in their environments, you might want to prepare for religious people to ask you questions like, well, does that person know that you disapprove of their lifestyle? I guarantee you something like that will happen. If you go hang out with that coworker that nobody really likes and your coworkers see you doing that, bet money you're going to catch some glances, right? People are going to glare at you as a result. If you associate with that person in your class that annoys everybody and asks way too many questions at the wrong time and people see you hanging out with them, I assure you some people will throw some shade at you. Absolutely they will. There may be people who call you names as a result, might accuse you of things as a result, might even exclude you as a result of who you are including. And here's why, because you're going against the grain of how the world operates. 
The way the world operates is to draw boundary lines, right? This person is in, this person is out. Whatever the lines are, there are people who are in and people who are out. And if you choose to include the people who are normally out, bet money people are going to exclude you as a result. That's how this works. Happened to Jesus, it'll happen to us if we choose to go his route of radical inclusion. That's what happens to Jesus. People grumble at him. Jesus does not abide by their societal expectations. He doesn't play by the who's in and who's out rules like they want him to. They think that the way we should treat people that we disapprove of is to shun them. Jesus thinks we should have dinner with them. That's his approach. But Jesus is on to something, apparently. As a result, here's what happens. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, now look at this part right here, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So notice, as a result of Jesus' radical inclusion of this guy Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus owns up to his sin, right? He, in a way, confesses what he has done wrong. He offers to give half of his fortune to the poor and offers to pay back anything he has defrauded people of four times over. So as a result of Jesus befriending this tax collector named Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' behavior changes as a result. Jesus accepts him, and then as a result of that acceptance, his behavior begins to change. Do you see that in the passage? But I want you to notice that it doesn't happen the other way around, right? You can't get that order flipped. Jesus does not say, Zacchaeus, if you change your behavior, if you align your beliefs with mine, then I will accept you and befriend you. Jesus doesn't do it that way. He doesn't say, if you change your behavior, then I will come to your house and have dinner with you. He doesn't do it that way. He accepts and befriends Zacchaeus. And then as a result of that friendship, Zacchaeus' behavior changes. Do you see the importance of those sequence of events in the passage? And truthfully, this is the way that the gospel works in people, right? The gospel starts with God's compassion towards us through Jesus. And then as a result of that, it creates changed lives and behaviors and habits and all of that. It happens as a result of God's compassion. Plenty of people, and I think especially people who claim to be Christians, they get the order of those events precisely backwards. We often expect people's behavior to be distinctly Christian, even when they're not Christians yet. We expect people to act like they follow Jesus when they haven't even encountered Jesus yet. But that makes no sense. If they haven't encountered the love and the grace of Jesus, why would their lives look like someone who has? That's to radically misunderstand how the good news of Jesus works in a person's life. And to be honest with you, I think this is one of the reasons that people think Christians are intolerant. Because we expect people to act like Christians who aren't Christians. 
We expect everyone in the world to hold the same exact values that we do, to have the same moral standards that we do, even before they've encountered the compassion of Jesus that would lead to all of that. And when we expect that, we end up communicating that people need to change their behavior before they can become a Christian, which is the exact opposite of the order of the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that trusting in him, encountering his grace and compassion actually leads to a changed life as a response. But you can't get it the other way around. If we want to model our lives after Jesus, we lead with compassion towards people. We lead with compassion. We lead with grace and radical inclusion. We lead with the good news of Jesus that seeks us out and saves us when we were lost. The gospel that transforms the way that we think about ourselves. And then from there, then after that, once people have encountered that message, then we help people learn how to follow Jesus step by step. We help them learn how the good news infiltrates every arena of their life. From there, we help walk with them as they learn how to reorient how they think about money and sex and possessions and life and relationships and everything else in their life. But all of that happens as a response to the grace of Jesus, not as a prerequisite for the grace of Jesus. You can't get that order flipped. So if you are in the room today and you force people to change their behavior before you will accept them, here's the problem. You've actually forgotten who you were. You've actually forgotten who you were before Jesus. You've misremembered something about the compassion of Jesus in your own life. You've forgotten what Jesus did for you, namely that he showed you compassion before you changed, not after. You've forgotten that on one level or another, you were Zacchaeus. We all were Zacchaeus. And Jesus entered into our life, showed us radical inclusion through his death on the cross, welcomed us into his family, and then he began to reorient how we think about life as a result. That's the way it happened. You know, for all of our talk of tolerance and of acceptance in our society, I think what we actually are after is not tolerance, but grace. I think what we actually want is grace, right? I mean, we want a love that accepts us just as we are. We want someone that will show us compassion to us just as we are, but we don't want something that leaves us just as we are. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to struggle with the same things I struggle with now, five, ten years from now. I don't want to be the same person that I am right now, five, ten years from now. I don't want to be as broken and as flawed in exactly the same ways as I am right now, five, ten years from now. Sure, I want to be accepted just as I am, but I don't want to stay just as I am. I want to become a more healthy, a more whole, a more loving, a more compassionate human being than I am right now. And if those things are going to happen, if I'm going to grow, if I'm going to be transformed as a human being, if I'm going to be a better version of me in the future, I need something better than tolerance. I need God's transformative grace in my life. That's what I truly need. A love that accepts me exactly as I am, 
but doesn't leave me exactly as I am. That's what our souls actually long for. And listen, that is the type of love and acceptance that the gospel offers us. That's what's on offer to us from the God of the universe is a love that accepts us as we are and transforms us from the inside out. The type of compassion that accepts an immoral tax collector just as he is and sits down for dinner with him. But the type of transformative grace that doesn't just leave him where he is. I wonder what would happen if all of us who are followers of Jesus treated people who disagree with us like that. I wonder what would happen if all of us as followers of Jesus saw the people in our society that maybe we fundamentally disagree with. We fundamentally disapprove of the way they go about life, but we treated them like Jesus treated Zacchaeus in this story. What would happen if we began to treat people like that? If we followed Jesus' example of radical inclusion, I wonder how many tax collectors today would be transformed from the inside out as a result. I wonder how many people's perceptions of Christianity would be changed as a result of that. So together, as followers of Jesus, let's offer people something far better than tolerance. Let's offer transformative grace from Jesus who loves people where they're at and changes them from the inside out as a result. So just real quickly, before we're done, I just want to ask one question to all of us in the room. One question I want you to wrestle with before we're done. Question is this, who are you currently withholding acceptance from? Who are you currently withholding acceptance from? Who in your life are you expecting in some way or another to change their behavior, to adjust their actions before you will accept them and love them? Who are you withholding God's transformative grace from? Maybe it's one particular person in your life. Maybe you're thinking of somebody specific. Or maybe for you, it's, it's a certain group of people. Maybe it's somebody that you know really, really well, somebody that you're in relationship with on a regular basis, or maybe it's just a certain type of person that exists out there in the world. Maybe that's who you withhold acceptance from. But I'd love for us to just ask the question, who am I withholding acceptance from right now? Because whoever it is, whatever that type of person is that you just refuse to accept, that you refuse to show compassion and grace towards, whoever it is and however great the distance between you and them is, and it might be a great distance between you and them for sure, but however great that distance is, here's one thing I can assure you, it's not greater than the distance was between you and God. It's not greater than the distance that Jesus had to travel from heaven to earth, climb up on the cross, and die for each one of us so that he could extend grace and compassion towards us. So listen, I'm not saying there's not legitimate differences between you and other people. I'm not saying it's, it, that it won't take work to show them love and acceptance and transformative grace. It, it very well may. But I am saying, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is what the gospel inspires us to do. 
is show radical inclusion and compassion to those that we most fundamentally disagree with and disapprove of because that's what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Father, as always, the, uh, the things that you call us to are, are often fundamentally at odds with the way that the world operates. God, no doubt, um, treating people this way and including people this way is going to take work. It's going to take practice. It's going to take patience and understanding, forgiveness. Got all of those things. Um, But your spirit has enabled us to do every bit of that. And so God, I, I pray that whoever that is, whatever group of people or whatever person that we uh, most instinctively write off and exclude and shun and hate, God, I pray that today we would be motivated by the example of Jesus who went and sought out a tax collector, came over to his house for dinner, And as a result, changed and reoriented everything about this guy's life. God, I pray first that we would see ourselves in Zacchaeus, that we would first understand that you did this for us, but then as a response, that we would be motivated to do this for others. So God, whatever it takes, however long it takes, God, I pray that you would walk with us through showing people radical inclusion. God, that we would show the world there is a better way forward than name-calling and writing people off and excluding people and drawing boundary lines. God, I pray that people would look at us and how we interact with those in our society that we disagree with and that they would see the beauty of the gospel in it and they would discover who you are as a result. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.